Hi, everybody. Welcome to the August 28th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right to it. Topic one. This week, the Republican National Convention was held from Monday through Thursday, featuring a mixture of pre-taped and live speeches. Lauren Boebert, candidate for Colorado's 3rd Congressional District, attended President Trump's acceptance speech on Thursday evening, which was held with an audience in front of the White House. Uh, with our friend Miss Calhoun out uh, on, uh, uh, not, I'm sure it's vacation, but she's out this week. Eric Sonderman, political analyst and columnist with Colorado Politics, joins us. Thank you for being here, Eric. Uh, we talked about the DNC last week and the lack of Colorado voices. The RNC certainly had a lack of Colorado voices, even though we had a candidate in the audience. Uh, did the RNC do anything for Colorado races from what you could see? Only to the extent, Dominic, that uh, the national races, everything is now nationalized. Everything is federalized. So the national imp races impact so much of what's going on in Colorado. Ask Cory Gardner that fact. The, uh, the, the hill he's trying to climb is less a hill of his own making or of John Hickenlooper's making. It's a hill of Donald Trump's making. So to the extent that uh, the Republicans move the meter on their behalf at that convention, and time will have to tell, time being a matter of a few days or a week until we get some credible polling, now that both conventions are in the book, we'll see where this uh, thing stands. I'm just struck, you know, these two conventions now behind us, uh, conventions is a word used loosely, let's call them two TV shows, uh, now behind us. The different versions of America they offered. I mean, we are living in an age right now where there just is no thematic overlap. We're seeing two very different formulations of what this country is about and two very different, almost apocalyptic uh, definitions of what the threats are to this country. One side preaching that if Trump is reelected, it's the end of our democratic institutions, our democratic traditions as we know them. And the other side preaching that if, uh, if Trump is not reelected and Biden is elected, we're going to become a Venezuelan style socialist state. And that doesn't leave much room for the middle ground. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, like we talked about last week, uh, different colored voices, but affecting colored races, uh, specifically, I guess, the highest profile one being uh, Cory Gardner. But we also didn't hear about any other candidates where usually we would see some of those faces, maybe even some of the Colorado bench, if you will. Uh, does it have, at, at the end of the day, will it have much of an effect on Colorado races? Um, for the reasons, Eric is saying that, that a rising tide lifts all boats. So uh, the, the success of this week's con convention uh, helps Gardner in that sense. You know, And we're also not in the situation like in 1972 when President Nixon, the Republican, was reelected in a national, enormous landslide and a landslide in Colorado. And in that same election, the Democratic Senate challenger, Floyd Haskell, beat a three-term incumbent Republican, uh, Gordon Allott, who hadn't really done anything wrong, but Haskell ran a better campaign. Um, th this Republican convention didn't pr produce, for the first time since 1856, when they started having Republican conventions, didn't produce a party platform. We just got a bunch of talking points that they, they wrote down. Um, Trump broke a, uh, at least, which is at, at least a long-standing tradition against using the White House as a uh, political uh, ba uh, backdrop for rallies, as, as if it were the, the presidential palace in a banana republic. Um, but it's, he's not the first guy to break norms. Clinton, Obama, and Gore all did all kinds of illegal fundraising in the White House, um, and, but they didn't put it on television, so I guess that was higher decorum. Uh, but uh, Trump is a reality TV star. 
He's very good at that. He knows about television production, and especially in, to make him look good, especially when he can control everything. Um, he needed to reset the race, and I think the convention was uh, successful at that, which is not to say he won't undo everything by saying, putting his foot in his mouth and saying something extremely stupid on Monday because he does stuff like that all the time. Join us remotely, Joey Bunch, Deputy Managing Editor at Colorado Politics. Thank you so much for joining us, Joey. Uh, you're a political reporter by trade, uh, writing a lot of great stuff for Colorado Politics, along with other folks at our current table. Uh, what did you think of the RNC, and then specifically uh, what it might affect uh, here in Colorado? Well, you know, I felt about the RNC much like I did the DNC, is that you know, it's much ado about nothing. Like, you know, let's face it, these conventions, you know, they're award shows for party loyalty. I don't think they reflect what's going to happen in November at all. You know, did any of us give Trump a chance four years ago after the conventions? I didn't. You know, the two conventions, they speak to their base. And, you know, every election, I see the myth, the great myth of the undecided voter grow more. You know, yes, you know, Trump picked up two or three points. Uh, you know, and then uh, then Biden did the same thing last week. But, you know, more than picking up votes, they reassured people that were probably going to vote for him anyway. And, you know, there wasn't a big, big Colorado presence. I talked to Cory Gardner on Monday when uh, when the RNC was kicking off and, you know, he was out campaigning in Colorado. And I said, well, if you were giving a convention speech this week, what would that speech be? What would the party platform be if Cory Gardner was writing the, the party platform? And he said it would be about Colorado, and that's not the kind of convention that Donald Trump is going to want. Donald Trump is going to want a convention about Donald Trump. That's why they did it at his house. Now, how does it affect Colorado? It affects Lauren Boebert. You know, she went from being an outsider to being an insider, but I put outsider with an asterisk when it's Donald Trump's inside. But she was at the White House last night instead of talking to the Colorado Water Congress on the Western Slope yesterday. I moderated that event. She sent a video. John Hickenlooper sent a video on Tuesday. So, you know, people had rather talk to Washington than talk to voters in Colorado. That's what I make of the last two weeks. Natasha Gardner also joined us remotely, freelance journalist, uh, a longtime member of this panel. So, Natasha, thank you so much for being here. Uh, wrap it up for us. Uh, the RNC this week, the DNC last week, the effect on Colorado, if anything, is it all forgotten by Monday? What do you think? Well, I think, if anything, it is a true launch of, of the election season. Now, I know for people at this table, I know people watching this show, it feels like we never got out of election season. But I think for a lot of voters, the conventions really signal the start of that. And yes, the election is fast approaching. Um, you know, to build on something that has been already repeated on this table, the, this idea of undecided voters is, is something, it's kind of a quaint idea we might have to to get rid of. I think the biggest question is turnout. You know, and Colorado has a great history of this, you know, topping 70% in the last presidential election of eligible voters showing up or mailing in their ballots because, of course, Colorado uses a mail-in system. Um, I think the biggest question for, for both on the presidential end of the ticket, but down for local races, is going to be turnout. So it's not that people are hugely undecided about Trump or Biden. I think they have a, a pretty good decision about both of these known quantities too. I mean, Biden is not a newcomer. People are very familiar with Trump after four years of him in the White House. So now the question is, 
if they are going to vote and if they return those ballots. And that's what could sway the local races. And that's where the impact on Colorado, I think, is really going to be seen. Um, otherwise, it, it could just be a repeat of what we've seen in election after election, um, where it just sort of trades back and forth. But people are pretty stuck in their ways and they vote that way consistently. Over the weekend, Denver faced another round of disruption, including riots at the Denver Police Headquarters downtown. Executive Director of Public Safety Murphy Robinson denounced participants as anarchists, and Governor Polis said that these were acts of criminal terrorism. Meanwhile, other altercations with police occurred as some homeless camps were disbanded in various areas of the city this week. Uh, David, we start with you on this one. What were your thoughts of how uh, city and the city officials and the governor uh, characterized the situation? Well, kudos to them for for finally speaking up. But their their words need to be backed up by action to uh, to take the criminals off, violent criminals off the street. I want to say that not all anarchists are bad people. There are plenty of people who believe in anarchy as a political philosophy, and they're very peaceful, decent human beings, and they don't they don't use their uh, philosophy is some pretext uh, to go out and, and pillage and, and, and destroy. So not all, like, like not all Muslims, not all anarchists, not all police, not all say, uh, it's a legitimate political point of view for somebody to have, even though I don't agree with it. Um, uh, Colorado Independent columnist uh, Mike Litwin criticized the governor uh, for using the word terrorism, but it's really quite an apt word. It comes the word comes from the reign of terror in the, the French Revolution when the extreme left Jacobin uh, party used, violently attacked uh, both the politically incorrect and just random people, the better to terrorize uh, the rest of the population into submission. RTD director Chantel Lewis uh, tweeted that she favored people over, criticized Polis and said that she was for people over politics, propaganda, property, process, protocol, and polis. And, you know, the belief that uh, violently destroying some family's business is uh, supporting people is uh, really an example of privilege and uh, prejudice. Um, but it happens to be a common view in, in uh, the Democratic Party today and not in the mainstream and not just on the fringe. And that's why so many Democratic politicians have been so timid about even criticizing the, the rioters and let alone doing anything about the violent criminals. Joey, we go to you next. Uh, these were uh, totally different comments that we had heard before, especially coming from Governor Polis. Uh, do you think this signals a, a change in how both state officials and city officials here in Denver are going to handle uh, the situation moving forward? Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, we these are new comments in this situation, but we've been here before. You know, each protest, I've got the advantage, as you have, of having been around and been through this cycle a few times, and each protest has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I think right now we're at the late middle to end stage of this. You know, the Occupy movement went through the same thing a decade ago because it's not, it doesn't matter that the public officials are fed up with it because that's who they're trying to antagonize. What matters is people like Dave is fed up with, people like me is fed up with it. You know, once people on the street are fed up with it, that's when a movement dies. Because, you know, the people that care, really cared about the cause, you know, they stopped showing up. And then just the, uh, you know, the troublemakers and the, uh, the loudmouths continue on. That's what happened with the Occupied movement. That's what's happened with uh, the anarchist movement. You know, Dave's friends. But, um, you know, I think people, maybe terrorism is too strong a word. Maybe annoyed is the right word. And the public is just fed up with this. And when when change happens at the street level, that's when change happens. 
And I think I, I, I think you made some good points, but I want to make that distinction that I think, and that at least from what I saw this week, is that you saw similar groups who were using other, uh, whether it be protest rallies or just simply actions as excuses, because it was you saw you know the same people saying, well, you know, okay, we're, we're going to make this other rally happening somewhere else as a reason to do something, and then a homeless camp being moved. There were altercations with police where homeless advocates weren't pushing police and the homeless people weren't. It was random folks who suddenly were part of this thing. They're, you know, not part of a particular movement, just suddenly, well, here's an opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, really just have a confrontation. So that, that seemed to come into uh, focus this week. Natasha, your take on this as you see the reactions from the city and really some strong words from uh, officials across the board. Yeah, obviously, there's been a call for the the city, the state, um, law enforcement, public officials to take strong stances on the the looting and um, the rioting, the, the sort of violence against um, businesses. Uh, this, however, gets so complicated, and this is America today because this the these instances are overshadowing the larger question of why they they really started and what what has happened and why why we're in this moment right now. You know, so as this is happening this week, we, of course, are seeing a different part of this conversation um, with our major league sports teams. Um, We're seeing peaceful protests around the country. We're seeing all kinds of discussions going on about what needs to happen to make change permanent in this country. So how you sort through this, I don't know. The media, I don't think, is doing a great job of it. Obviously, public officials are struggling with what what the right tone is and how to keep these these messages clear um, to condemn um, criminal acts, but also make sure that people have have the right to to say what they need to say and to, to fight for change. So unfortunately, I don't think this conversation gets any easier tonight. I don't think it gets easier to discuss this weekend. And I think we're going to still be sorting through what is a very complicated, um, decades-old issue in this country for many, many more months, potentially years. Eric, what do you think of the impact will be from the comments we heard? I mean, it certainly seemed, uh, you know, from, from my eyes as a, as a distinct point, but maybe I'm, I'm totally wrong. Did, did the comments, will the comments make an impact? We'll see. We'll have to see the next, uh, you know, the next time there's a disruption. It indicated a level of resolve from uh, Michael Hancock, from Jared Polis, and others that maybe we hadn't seen, or at least rhetorically seen, uh, heretofore. Uh, Natasha is right, and others are right as well. But there's certainly plenty to protest in the, in this country these days. And let's not forget that the protests we're talking about, or the disturbances we're talking about, uh, predate what happened in Kenosha, which now has everything further aflame over the last uh, over the last few days. So there's plenty to protest. Uh, but the, you know, the particular disruption we're talking about last weekend that seemed to be have been precipitated by this notion, the Candy Cedar notion, which 12 other members of city council didn't even get on board with, of having a peace force. First of all, the idea of a peace force has always struck me as a giant oxymoron. I don't know how you put those two words, uh, put those two words together. This is such a volatile political issue, but it is also the Democrats, going back to the first topic, the Democrats' number one vulnerability in my mind. Uh, Joe Biden's going to have to go some distance to lose this election, in my estimation. But if he's going to lose this election, and that is certainly far from impossible, this issue of civic unrest and people not 
feeling safe, not feeling comfortable, and not seeing an end or a resolution in sight is the challenge, and he needs to be very careful and strategic and delicate in how he handles it and how he separates himself from some other interests that he's aligned with. Colorado House Minority Leader Patrick Neville and conservative commentator Michelle Malkin have filed a lawsuit against Governor Polis's various emergency orders, including the statewide mask mandate, alleging that the orders are unconstitutional and the power for such orders falls to the legislative branch of government. Joey, we start with you on this one. Uh, it, the headlines were all about the mask mandate, but it is a part of this bigger point about all the emergency orders. Um, knowing that we have a Democratic legislative branch of government currently in Colorado, is this more... You know, is this a, a lawsuit about uh, constitutionality, or is it just trying to poke at Go- Governor Polis? Well, it, it's both of those things equally. It, it, it's damn sure good political theater. But, you know, the emergency power of, of governors and mayors and presidents, you know, they're broad and they're deep, but there's also precedents here. You know, Polis signed in an executive order that said that, you know, they could collect ballot signatures over email and mail, and then the state Supreme Court said, no, that, that's too far. You know, it's, it's the job of the legislature to write laws and the job of the governor to enforce laws. So that's the case that they're arguing here. But, you know, more than that, Republicans need something to energize their base. They, they haven't really been truly energized since they were fighting the masks and fighting the orders of the, uh, of the, of the pandemic shutdown in, in the spring. And we're going into Labor Day. You know, they need something to energize the party. But, you know, right now, only one in three Americans think the president has done a good job of handling the pandemic. So as much as anything else, this is just a way to change the political conversation. You know, maybe they'll win, maybe they won't win. But more than anything else, I think it's aimed at November more than it's aimed at next week. Natasha, what do you think? I mean, if it goes to the point where the suit is won and the similar result of what Joey talked about of saying the governor did go too far, is this something where the legislature would want to address the, the issues the same way? I think that's a great place to sort of start this conversation is do we think that the current legislature would actually back up the governor on this? And I'm guessing that they would. Um, What's amazing to me is we are sitting here in August, late August, and still having conversations about masks, still having conversations about their effectiveness, whether people should wear them or not, and and what role the state or city has to have in in, in this matter. Um, You know, certainly in the very early days in our first uh, remote tapings, this is a topic around this table as well. So it's amazing to me that we're still continuing to have that conversation. What I do think um, is is an important part of this is, of course, there's a legal question and courts should figure that out first and foremost. But on an individual level, I think it would be good to have some business voices in here about how this has impacted them. Once the mandate came down from a state level, how did that affect their businesses? Were they able to run more efficiently? Were their employees having to spend less time talking to guests about wearing masks? I mean, there, there's a lot of implications of this mask um, mandate that that isn't just about the individual wearing the mask, but how it impacts our economy and our ability to be open as well. So I hope that outside of the legal discussions, as we continue to look at addressing this pandemic in general, that those small businesses, in particular those Colorado businesses that are keeping our economy afloat, have a loud voice at that table. Eric, is there a longer play here with uh, the move from Neville and Malkin? I don't know if there's longer play. Um, I, I think I'll identify with both of the, the commentators who came before me. 
I think it is healthy to get a ruling on the extent of the governor's emergency powers. He has used these powers in a much bolder, broader, all-encompassing way than any preceding governor. These particular powers don't date back to statehood or anything. They date back to legislation at some point, I believe, in the early 1990s. And let's get a judicial interpretation. I, for one, think the governor has used them for the most part. I, I appreciated the lawsuit and was glad he lost it on the on, on the ballot signatures. But for the most part, I think Jared Polis has handled this thing very well, and I'm glad he's had those emergency powers at his disposal. But let's get a legal resolution on that. To Joey's point about this being political theater and energizing the Republican base, Joey is right about that, but the problem is, yes, it energizes the Republican base, but it off-puts a whole lot of other voters. Even the mask issue, which the rebellion against masks tends to be mostly among Republican voters, but most Republicans are wearing masks and are glad to. They, that is a losing issue, even among Republicans, without getting to the broader electorate. So the Republicans, yeah, they energize their base, but it's like a magnet. One side attracts, the other side repels, and they're repelling a whole lot of voters. David, you're our esteemed lawyer at the table. What do we need to know about the uh, lawsuit and the Constitution when it comes to this issue? Well, they started by filing directly into the Colorado Supreme Court, which is allowed in, in certain cases, although the last time uh, the Colorado Supreme Court really did anything big in response to a, a direct filing like that was in 1905 when they acted to, to stop the imminent uh, theft of an election in Denver. But then if they don't get what they want from the Colorado Supreme Court, then they're also set to start a regular case in, in uh, state district court. And the argument is that the Colorado Disaster Emergency Act is unconstitutional, not as to whether Polis was wise or not in exercising his essentially dictatorial powers that, that he was granted by it. The law is very clear that the legislature can write a statute and let a executive branch administrative agency write regulations to fill in the details. Legislatures can delegate, but they have to delegate with standards. And the Emergency Powers, the Emergency Act, has no standards in it, as the argument goes. It's sort of like what the Hungarian legislature did with Viktor Orban in, uh, in, in their pandemic. Uh, go, go ahead, make any laws, do, do whatever you feel like. Uh, when, um, and that's, in, as the argument goes, a violation of the separation of powers, which is an explicit constitutional requirement uh, in our state. Let's get to our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Usually Miss Calhoun starts us off, but Eric, you're in the seat of honor. You go first. Oh, the pressure of starting off here. David touched on this in the first topic, but let me make it my disgrace. The president's use of the South Lawn of the White House for the speech last night. It was inappropriate. That is the people's house. Donald Trump has this way of conflating his interests and the public interest. It was inappropriate. Put yourself in the position of all these Trumpsters who loved it. And if Barack Obama had tried in 2012, when he was running for re-election, to do anything like that, they would have been outraged, which tells me the ethics are not ethics, they're just situational ethics. David. A report from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute is titled Uyghurs for Sale, and it details how Uyghurs in uh, China's colony of Xinjiang are forced into slave labor to produce goods for Nike, a Apple, and other multinationals. For example, one of the factories that supplies Nike is equipped with watchtowers, barbed wire fences, and police guard boxes, and the workers can't leave. And so perhaps those uh, sports ball players who are standing for social justice will start demanding that their leagues start buying apparel that's made in free nations uh, and not by slave labor. 
um, even though many sports ball players get about 10 to 15 percent of their income uh, because of their business relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. Joey, we go to you next. Well, I'm going to keep it in the Trump family. Donald Trump Jr. for saying Joe Biden wouldn't respect the rule of law and that the Biden family would profit off his presidency. Proving my point that there is no shame or self-awareness in politics. <laughs> that's that's going to be a point you can you can make all day long, uh, almost any any year we can think in recent history. Uh, Natasha, we go to you next. I'll, I'll give it to myself for not taking a moment last week to pause to celebrate the 19th Amendment anniversary. Um, and I just have to say thank you for everyone, of course, who, who fought for those rights. But more importantly, the, the, the issue is that voting is still not equally um, enjoyed by everyone in this country today. And so I appreciate the people who are still fighting to make that happen um, from long ago to, to present day. Time to say something nice about somebody. Eric? There was some rather big uh, media news this week that we haven't really touched on, which is the, the start of the Denver Gazette. It's the expansion of the Colorado Springs Gazette and of the Colorado Politics website that I write for, that Joey Bunch is the managing or deputy managing editor for, not sure of the exact title. Um, but it's the taking that operation, coming into the Denver market, providing a new medium in Denver and some more competition for the Denver Post. David, you should just call Joey Sir and not worry about the title. <laughs> um, so at last, on last week's uh, show, I, I t- uh, talked about John Quincy Adams, a great guy, and then found out after the show that two members of the CIO production staff are actually relatives of the illustrious John and Abigail Adams. And I think the, that, that wonderful couple would be very pleased to find their uh, uh, descendants and relatives working in educational programming today. Here, here. Joey, you're up next. Hey, hey, Melania Trump for giving her own speech this year, because if she had given Michelle Obama's, she would have said her husband is a danger to the country. (laughs) Natasha, (laughs) we go to you. As so many students return to school this week, you know, kudos to to teachers, kudos to administrators and parents and caregivers and anyone in between. But I really have to give a shout out to the students including my own, who have shown a lot of grit, grace, and empathy throughout the week. Here, here. Well, before we go tonight, I want to let all of you know that we have a, a new cool thing to talk about here at PBS 12. You can now watch the, this, like the channel, just like you're watching on regular TV, as a, live, a, a local live stream on the PBS app. If you have Roku or Apple TV or just want to call it up on your, uh, any device, you can watch it just like you're watching it uh, on any regular TV without any other encumbrances. So be sure to check it out. It's a brand new service. We're excited to be able to offer that thanks to your support. For everybody here at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you all so much for watching. Good night.